Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this very special extra edition of So To Speak, the free speech podcast. I'm your host, Nico Perino, and we're stepping outside of our every other week production slash publication schedule to bring you, the listener, an extra episode of the podcast because, well, the news cycle sort of demands it these days. As you're probably aware, if you follow higher education and or free speech issues in this country, there has been a spat of mob-driven censorship on college campuses lately. This more or less began on February 1st at the University of California, Berkeley, surrounding a planned appearance by former Breitbart editor Milo Yiannopoulos. And since then, it has spiraled out of control, culminating with the most recent occurrence on April 6th during a speech by the Manhattan Institute's Heather McDonald at Claremont McKenna College in California. McDonald was set to speak on the topic of policing in America and to address the arguments in her new book, The War on Cops, which, according to the Manhattan Institute's website, argues that race-based attacks on the criminal justice system from the White House on down are eroding the authority of law and putting lives at risk. This is a controversial argument on college campuses, to be sure, and one that some in the Claremont McKenna community didn't want anybody to hear. Our guest on today's episode is THE Heather McDonald, and as you'll learn during the podcast, McDonald's lecture on campus didn't go quite as planned. A mob surrounded the auditorium she was set to speak in and purposefully prevented anyone from entering. McDonald spoke for a short while to an empty room, but it wasn't before long that the police decided the situation was unsafe, forcing her to end her talk early and flee the building. In the free speech community, this is what we call a heckler's veto. A heckler's veto is what happens when a speaker is silenced by sheer volume or force so that the speaker's message cannot be heard by willing listeners. The heckler or hecklers in these cases thus appoint themselves the arbiter or arbiters of what speech may or may not be heard by others, a breathtakingly arrogant act. As Frederick Douglass wrote in 1860 after a mob broke up an abolitionist meeting he was hosting in Boston, to suppress free speech is a double wrong. It violates the rights of the hearer as well as those of the speaker. Now then, let's hear from someone who themselves was subjected to an incident of mob censorship and find out from her, Heather McDonald, what this experience was like. Heather, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Nico. I appreciate it. Welcome to uh, the Campus Culture Wars. Uh, (laughs) Are you a new entrant into these wars, or have you been speaking on campuses for a while now? I've been speaking, I would say the start of the real hostility was when I was at LSU, of all places, Louisiana State University, speaking on the police, and had the temerity to recommend the Boy Scouts as a marvelous program for any inner city youth. And I said, you've never seen anything so beautiful as an inner city scout troop. 
and I was called the very embodiment of the intersectionality of racism, homophobia, classism, and misogyny by a professor at the Ed School there. So you never know where the audience is going to come from, but you would have thought Baton Rouge would have been a little more sane, but it's not. Was there any heckling during your speech? When was that speech? That was probably now uh, perhaps a year and a half, if not two years ago. and it was fairly raucous, but nothing like recently. Have you been following what's been happening on college campuses in the past just couple months or, or so? Of course. How can one not? The growing violence, I, that's what's so extraordinary. What I find amazing is these students have the gall to call themselves anti-fascists, and I don't know of any term that would be more appropriate to refer to people who use brute force and sometimes criminal violence to shut down views they don't like as at least proto-fascists. Well, have you been a little bit cautious about going on college campuses since you've seen what's happened to, you know, scholars like Charles Murray or self-described provocateurs like Milo Yiannopoulos? No, I've I've made my commitments before then. Uh, Those recent grotesque outbreaks of of, uh, student narcissism and fascism, but I, I wouldn't back out anyway. Obviously, you don't want to reward uh, these people who are acting with such extraordinary disregard, not just for the speaker, that I can handle, but for their fellow students and trying to shut them off from hearing any non-orthodox, non-conforming views. Yeah, what we always say at FIRE is that the right to free speech is two sides of the same coin. There is, of course, the right for the speaker to speak or the student group to invite the speaker to speak. And then there's also the right for the listener to listen. Exactly. So let's talk about what happened to you last week at Claremont McKenna, um, because now you have <laughs> been added to the list of people that have either been disinvited from a college um, or heckled once they arrive on, on the campus. And we spoke earlier in this podcast series with, uh, I think, your colleague Jason Riley, mm-hmm. who was disinvited from university um, because of his thoughts on a lot of the same things that you work on. So when you were invited to Claremont McKenna to speak and then arrived on campus last week, what happened? Well, I was taken to what was in essence a safe house. It was a private suite that the uh, university has for speakers. But were, were there, Was there any indication that there, something was going to happen on campus before you arrived? Well, I was sent an urgent email the day before by a administrator, sort of a low-level assistant, uh, saying they had gotten wind of protest and at that point were considering moving the venue to a place with fewer plate glass windows and more means of egress. So that's not exactly reassuring. <laughs> yeah, um, as, as William McGurn with the Wall Street Journal wrote, such are the considerations these days on the modern American campus. Absolutely. You know, work out your exit, your very speedy exit routes in advance. When they picked me up from the train station in Claremont, they said, well, because they hadn't picked up any recent social media activity, they decided that things were just going to be fine and decided to keep the original venue. Uh, But there was a slight tension among the two people who picked me up. But my awareness really came as I was waiting there before my speech when I could hear the the rabble or the mob 
amassing outside of my vision, but certainly within my hearing, and the chanting growing louder and louder. There was one female voice in particular that had just a a note of hysteria. It was high, screeching, rising above everybody else, and there was drumming. So it it put me in mind without wanting to be too melodramatic or or self-dramatizing. One couldn't help but think, well, this is what the members of the aristocracy felt during the French Revolution and mm-hmm. hearing the mob gathering outside, or O'Neill's Emperor Jones with the the drumming uh, off off stage, and you know what what exactly what sort of primal instincts does this represent? What were the organizers saying to you when uh, presumably you were with them um, before you you went on on the stage to speak? What were they saying to you? Well, they. Were they nervous visibly? Yes, they were concerned about uh, police accompaniment getting me in. They had said that they would pick me up at around quarter of six to escort me through a out-of-sight passageway to what the venue which is known on campus as the Athenaeum. And they were late in arriving, uh, and I called because I was wondering, have you forgotten me? And they were there with a Claremont City Police Department person, and, and they did look rather tense at that point. Mm-hmm. And what had happened at this point, and you write this in your piece for City Journal, Get Up, and Get Up Stand Up, was a group of students had sort of prevented anyone from getting into the auditorium to hear you, and you were scheduled to have a dinner with a bunch of students before your your speech, and you entered into the hall where you were supposed to have this dinner, and, and no one was there. Right. Were any students able to make it into the building? There were two students who, actually three, uh, who I guess run, from the student perspective, this speaker series. And so they were greeting me, and then there was a third, a female who says she's the mater d of these events. Uh, so I talked to them, and one one of the two that are I think running it um, introduced me. So I don't know when they were brought in. I, I can add as well that the original plan was that I would meet with students even before that, uh, around. 2.30 in the afternoon, and there was a whole scheduled set of meetings, and those just were periodically cast overboard in an mm. attempt to keep this ship from going down entirely. So the my uh, schedule became narrower and narrower as, as the mob grew more and more powerful. According to your article, they more or less linked arms. Uh, in front of the entryways? Yeah, well, there was a, a marvelously self-engrossed and, and delusional uh, gimmick that they had, which was to put the black students on the inner ring and put the white students on the outside of their blockade to stand between the black students and the police mm-hmm. <laughs> on this just preposterous conceit that these... Uh, emasculated, docile campus police officers would somehow be driven to a state of frenzy by seeing black students and would 
bring out the billy clubs or something. I mean, it's they're they're at that degree of melodrama and complete uh, disconnection from reality. But all of this, again, I didn't see because I was hustled in outside of of uh, anybody's viewpoint and outside of my viewpoint. Uh, and I only became aware of what was going on when I was inside the hall and heard them pounding mm. on the windows, which you can get to. Yeah, well, the protest was more or less effective, right? Because there was no one in the hall to hear you speak. But for um, optics, the university decided to live stream your speech to an empty hall before deciding to shut it down. Am I correct? Right. They would strongly protest your characterization, I'm sure. They are viewing this as overall a free speech triumph because I was able to live stream it. And in fact, the college president rather morosely pointed out that, in fact, these protesters, or I wouldn't call them protesters, I would call them mob, uh, mob and... and, uh, Mob censors. Yeah, proto-fascists had given me a much larger audience than I would have otherwise had because more people watched via live streaming. Mm -hmm. But... I, I would say that that is somewhat trying to put a positive spin on it, although I do acknowledge that they certainly, as with Charles Murray at Middlebury, you know, set up the live streaming option as an, a sincere, I think, good faith attempt to allow me to speak. But that leaves out the fact that it I did not have the face-to-face interaction. And one has to assume that the very point of inviting a speaker to campus is this notion that the live speech, there's something charismatic or visceral about being in the presence of a speaker, because otherwise I would have been much more happy to remain in New York and live stream from there rather than have to take the time uh, to fly all the way out to California to meet with students. You make you make an interesting point, and the, the president kind of makes an interesting point about your message re- reaching a wider audience. and. One of the things that we talk to students about when they consider these mob censorship tactics is that the people you're trying to censor, their message is going to reach, reach, reach a wider audience because of that censorship. You were telling me before we jumped on air here that you've been doing a lot of media appearances after this, and your message presumably has gotten out to a wider audience or than it otherwise would have had the students not tried to barricade uh, the building and prevent other students from getting in. And I, you know... You can tell me this. Has your book uh, increased in sales? You were there to talk about your book. What is it? War on Cops? The War on Cops. Yeah. Has, has that you know seen a rise in the Amazon rankings as a result? Well, your readers may not or listeners may not believe this, but I actually don't check. I, I don't <laughs> believe in that sort of thing. I'm curious. I have to admit I'm very curious, and I would certainly hope for a bump, but I'll leave that to other people to check. But um, yeah, one hopes that in, in one sense... It is great publicity, and I don't know if students are too dumb to figure that out or if they just have no capacity for deferred gratification, and it feels so ennobling and they feel so self-righteous by these protests that they would rather go for that immediate gratification and, and ignore the fact that they are actually amplifying a message that they claim is quite literally lethal. Uh, to minority students on campus. So you're saying that it's more of a cathartic act. Than I think anything, absolutely. Than, uh, you know, a practical, tactical one. Absolutely. I mean, the the uh, faux 
respect that is granted student protesters, I find just amazing. You know, we all think, oh, they're protesting about something in Africa. It must be serious. Or they're protesting capitalism. We better listen to them. Oh, come on. Most of these people, it's just a fad. It's something that is fun to do and shows that they're not getting enough homework. Uh, but, but uh, you know, people pretend to forget that students are engaging in basically herd behavior and getting among certain circles status points by being social justice warriors. But it is, uh, you know, a recreational activity, I think, in many, in many instances. But an effective one from their standpoint, uh, because you ultimately did have to get shuffled out of the auditorium, correct? And you, you write in your piece, uh, Get Up, Stand Up, that you had to go out some back way and you stumbled upon some students who were sitting on a curb or something, took them unknowingly, and one of them thanked you for being there. Mm-hmm. I find that a lot. I mean, no matter how hostile the audience, inevitably there are students who come up and say, thank you so much for coming. So I appreciate that. Did you hear from any other members of the Claremont McKenna community sort of outraged at what happened with your appearance? Well, I've seen an email chain uh, between the member of the alumni relations and a an alumnus of Claremont where the alumnus is badgering him about the to put a, a cynical uh, spin on it the spin that they're giving about this in fact was successful speech um, and I've heard seen references to the fact that the faculty was upset I I was con- contacted by the head of the Rose Institute, which is what invited me for state and local governance, a very gracious note. And he had sent around a, I think, thoughtful note before the shutdown, making a very good faith effort to present my point of view honestly uh, and saying it took a great deal of, I I mean, I'm not going to say this courage, but because that's preposterous. We're not, none of us are are courageous, but he did point out that I too believe that black lives matter and that my response is that the police are the government agency most dedicated to that. So so he's reached out and I do have a um, interview scheduled with the president next week who has reached out to me. So I have no idea what that's going to entail. Yeah. Well, the night before this Claremont McKenna speech, you spoke at UCLA, and mm-hmm. the speech was met with protest as well, but you were able to give it. And there was, you know, the Q&A that you were talking about not being able to happen at Claremont McKenna happened at UCLA, and students were able to ask you these questions. You were able to respond to them. Uh, what was that experience like? Well, that was pretty raucous as well. And, and you know, one can add with the Claremont of just the short-sightedness of it, it was at the Q&A period where I was finally it was cut off because students on the outside of this glass encased building were pounding on the glass panes and and shouting uh, and so I think they were worried that they would break through but it was precisely in the Q&A where if they really believe in their cause that's what they should be hoping for if they think that they can uh, smoke me out as a racist uh, instead I I got my main body of my remarks out. In, at UCLA, 
uh, I did finish my remarks to an audience with the body language. You could tell we're not exactly happy, but again, one one hates to say to their credit they allowed me to speak because we're just defining deviance down now uh, to take as the norm being silenced. So we're grateful to not be silenced. But in any case, I finished and. Uh, then there was a massive protest starting in the back of the room where a bunch of people stood up and started shouting and then stormed the front of the classroom where my lectern was and demanded the mic. The organizers were very calm and collected and refused. So there was about at least 10 minutes of badgering back and forth with them chanting and demanding control and not getting it. And eventually the organizer managed to get people who were not in the really raucous protest to line up and take questions. Now, during the Q&A, there was heckling that went on. But again, that's arguably within their zone of free speech. Do you have um, any indication of what UCLA administrators thought about your speech there? You said in your piece, Get Up, Stand Up, that they haven't really acknowledged what happened with the heckling during your speech there. I'm unaware. I have frankly not been following the student newspaper. I would assume that maybe the organizers who invited me would send me on any indications of a response, but that's probably not a fair assumption. So I don't know. Uh, They, again, looking at the model of Claremont, would probably view this as a marvelous success. Yeah, well, Claremont could have used more police force if it wanted to to prevent the the students from barricading the entrance to the the building but you write in your piece um, that the president of the university made the conscious decision not to advise the police to use more force because he perceived it as a as a safety issue and you said you know you will not second guess the president's decision not to arrest the mob blocking blocking access to the athenium do you think that was a good decision or alternatively, this is maybe a tough question to ask you, um, but were you, was there any point during your lecture in the in the empty auditorium when you were hearing the pounding on the glass windows that you were more or less fearful, you know, that you could be harmed? Or fearful injured? for the unknown. Uh, definitely. Just you, you don't know what's going to happen. And the people that were in the room besides the three students, there were police officers. Everybody was not looking at me. So I was, the the few eye contact opportunities I might have had weren't there because everybody was riveted by what was happening behind my back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're trying to imagine what's going on there. It's, it was a challenge. Um, but yeah, you don't, you don't quite know what the next moment holds. Uh, and I think, again, I'm not going to second guess him. And the Police people that I've spoken to subsequently will possibly back him up and say, if you don't have enough officers, making arrests can make things worse. My view is, if you are engaged in unlawful behavior, which this was by the university codes, you don't get to choose uh, the way the and authorities respond. And if the authorities had the lawful right to make arrests, I think I would have done so. But I think, I hope from now on, universities are on notice that if somebody 
sends out a message to shut it down, they really mean it. And you should show up with a lot of, of officers to at least use what's known in the business as command presence, which is simply uh, by by being present as a law enforcement officer to deter criminal behavior. Do you think there was enough police presence to protect you personally? Or did you feel that while you were there? Um, I think so. I mean, it, the getting back and forth when we tried to coordinate my exit from the building, there was a lot of people consulting about escape routes, trying to time the arrival of the unmarked police car. So it seemed like a lot. But again, again, I, I will admit to trepidation in waiting in the kitchen to make the exit of not knowing exactly what's out there. Um, in, in retrospect, you know, I think these were largely Pacific students and were not intending to use violence. It, it's, it was not at the level of the Middlebury protest, I don't think. Yeah, universities are in a tough position here because on the one hand, you use force and you break up students and there's the potential for injury and this is caught on camera and you have a huge PR catastrophe as a result of that. And um, I think that informed some of, some of Berkeley's response with Milo Yiannopoulos because they had this commission put together after a use of excess, excessive force report uh, a couple of years prior, and they discovered, they came up with new plans to address this sort of mob activity. And part of it was to just contain the activity and, and to really not make any arrests at the time. But on the other hand, you know, behavior that gets rewarded gets repeated. And if you allow for this to happen without any sort of consequence, then any speaker who comes on campus who has, you know, a opinion outside of the campus orthodoxy might be subject to the heckler's veto. And then you're creating a de facto orthodoxy on, on campus. So they're in a really tough position. But you make the point in your article that even if you know, police presence or police arrests are foreclosed, there should be some consequences after the fact. These are, these are um, events that happen on iPhone cameras. You know who the students are who are locking arms and preventing anyone from getting into the building. Um, you see some of the students, if they're not masked, mm-hmm. uh, and they sometimes are in black, um, you, you can see their faces and I- identify them. But to your knowledge, have any students been, you know, brought up, brought up by the student code? In response to well, this. now the line from Claremont is that there were very few actual Claremont McKenna students there in the blockade, that it was mostly students from the neighboring colleges. There's a consortium of about five Claremont colleges there. I don't know if that's the case. But I, at this point, I'm going to take President Chodosh's word when he says he is going to levy consequences. But what you describe, Nico is also a product of the Black Lives Matter era that we're in, where cops are reluctant to use lawful means of making arrests because of not just the University of California report on the Davis pepper spray incident, but also the fear of the Black Lives Matter spin on this caught on a on a YouTube video. And so they are second guessing themselves relentlessly. And this is resulting on campus, perhaps in a chilling of speech, but more more consequentially, nationally, it's resulting in a very sharp spike uh, in violent crime in inner city areas where officers are 
backing off from the type of discretionary proactive policing that I believe lowers crime. Ironically, I, I can guess that that's probably what you were on campus to speak about because that's your area of expertise. And there, here you are at the center of a case study and what happens uh, when police use or don't use um, cer- certain uh, means at their disposal to arrest unlawful activity. Absolutely. And it's, you know, again, we can deal with not speaking, but let's not forget in Chicago last year, 4,300 people were shot, one person every two hours, virtually all black. If you believe the Black Lives Matter narrative, you'd think, boy, those cops were really busy shooting all those people. In fact, the cops shot 25 people, virtually all armed or dangerous. That's 0.6% of the total. The kids who were killed, the three-year-old boy shot on Father's Day last year, who's now paralyzed for life, or the 10-year-old shot on Labor Day, the bullet ripped through his kidney, spleen, and, and intestines. Nobody protested their their shootings because it doesn't fit the narrative because they were shot by gangbangers and not the police. And this is the discussion that you wanted to bring to campus and that you were encouraged other people to engage you in, uh, even if they disagreed with you. Is it the case now that we cannot discuss police on college campuses or have a have a debate about the proper use of police force on college campus if you don't fit certain ideological standards? Well, that's certainly the goal of, of many uh, students who have been brainwashed into this racial victimology that says that to be a minority on an American college campus today is at literal to be at literal risk for your life because of circumambient racism and uh, which is of course preposterous there's no more tolerant racially tolerant environment in human history than an American college campus um, but that's certainly the view is that to talk about, crime, to talk about the facts about black crime, the fact that blacks commit homicide 11 times the rate of whites, which must be taken into account if you're going to analyze police shootings. Uh, That is now seen as uh, murderous hate speech. We'll see. I'm, I'm speaking in Ohio later this month, and we'll see what happens there. On a college there. campus? Yes. All right. Do you have any inclination to go back to college campuses? I mean, are you going to continue to go back to college campuses? Is this something you want to do? Um, yes and no. Uh, I, I, I sort of like writing. And it is wearying confronting the degree of ignorance and self-righteousness on the part of students about policing and crime. These are students that, by and large have no clue about the disorder in inner city neighborhoods where there are no fathers. They have no clue about the support for the cops among thousands of law-abiding residents of those neighborhoods, people like a cancer amputee in the Mount Hope section of the Bronx who said to me, please, Jesus, send more police, because the only time she feels safe to go to her building lobby to get her mail is when the police are there because it's otherwise colonized by trespassing youth, hanging out, s- selling drugs, and smoking weed. Those are the voices that I'm trying to represent. And these kids 
are completely ignorant and hearing me is probably not going to change their minds. Uh, there may be people who are more inclined to a more realistic view of the need for policing that maybe I give backing to, but it, it does get uh, somewhat wearying to confront the degree of self-righteous ignorance. Mm-hmm. You say uh, in your piece, get up, stand up. It's more or less a call to action. You write in the subheadline that all who cherish free expression, especially on college campus, must confront the growing threat for censorship. And you place a particular emphasis on faculty. What do you think faculty should be doing to ensure that people like yourself, who have an opinion that maybe doesn't represent the majority of students' opinions on college campuses, what can they do to to protect the right for you know, student groups to invite you to speak or faculty groups to invite you to speak. And, and for students to hear that opinion that you say they're not going to hear on college campuses if you're not there. Well, first of all, let's note the irony of what is the status quo now, which is faculty passivity in the face of this growing thuggery and sometimes criminal violence. Faculty have been granted the extraordinary privilege of tenure which we'd all love to have. You know, you basically can't get fired for anything short of like the most egregious problems for to protect their own freedom of thought and speech. And yet they've got their heads in the sand. They're nowhere to be seen when the mob is in action. So what I think they should do if they know there's a controversial speaker to all of their classes, I don't care if you're a chemistry professor or a philosophy professor or a literature professor, you should give a talk to your students that day saying, we expect you to maintain the highest ideals of civilization, which is rational discourse rather than brute force. And uh, because let's still hope that persuasion matters and that an articulation of norms matters because right now nobody's trying it. So maybe it would matter. But on the day itself, I think there should be faculty brigades that are out there just as we had white students preposterously putting themselves between black students and the police, let's have the faculty putting themselves between the speaker and the mob to say, we're putting our bodies out here to say we believe that speech should be free on campus. Right at at the end of your piece, unless the campus zest for censorship is combated now, what we have always regarded as a precious inheritance could be eroded beyond recognition and a soft totalitarianism could become the new American norm. Heather McDonald, thanks for speaking with me today. Thank you so much, Nico. That was the Manhattan Institute's Heather McDonald. To read McDonald's article, Get Up, Stand Up, in City Journal, visit city-journal.org. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can... Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback as always at so to speak at the fire.org. And you can call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, Thank you all again for listening.